Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When a patent attorney was found dead in the Philadelphia apartment he kept above his office, it seemed a horrific accident. The man, named B.F. Perry, had burns disfiguring his face. Evidence of a chemical explosion littered the floor around him. His wife came forward, and though she had to explain why her husband was living under a fictitious name, his real name was Benjamin Peitzel, everything seemed kosher on the whole. Carrie Peitzel was paid $10,000 from a life insurance policy taken out on her husband, a hefty sum in 1895 that's worth more than $300,000 today. But Carrie didn't actually think her husband was dead. In fact, she was in on the scheme to fake his death with a disfigured cadaver for a fresh start, not just for Benjamin, but also for a struggling family. The plan had been concocted months earlier by Benjamin and his employer-slash-friend Henry Howard Holmes. And come September of 1895, things seemed to be going smoothly. But suddenly everything changed. Benjamin didn't resurface. What had started as an already convoluted plot morphed into something more bizarre and more gruesome than Carrie Peitzel ever could have imagined evolving into a case that featured a murder castle and included the deaths of Carrie's husband, three of her children, and at least five other people. Though some estimates put the body count well above 100. This is the story of H.H. Holmes, one of America's earliest serial killers. Listen, if you were to talk about any serial killer, it is obvious that the stories would be messed up. But H.H. Holmes was a special type of messed up. Holmes was instantly, really overnight, became this nationally infamous, nationally notorious figure, you know, the, the greatest criminal of his age. He has come down through history as America's first serial killer, the incarnation of pure evil. If you know anything about this case, chances are that's courtesy of the best-selling book The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which made headlines back in 2017 when word spread that Leonardo DiCaprio had bought the film rights and planned to star as Holmes. That movie's not yet come to pass, though, so people who aren't true crime aficionados aren't likely to know this case. And it is one of history's most perplexing. It's also one of history's most complicated cases, which is why this episode's a bit supersized. If you follow the natural arc of the story, the way that the world learned about the case back in the late 19th century, it feels disjointed, sort of like if Tim Burton and Quentin Tarantino got together to make a movie. Because this isn't just a story about a killer, and it's not just a story about a con man. It's a story about a guy who somehow pulled off both and did it in locations all over the country. Everything about the case is complicated. One minute we're in Chicago, the next we're in Texas, the next we're back in Chicago. You get the picture. But the deal is, let's dispense with any whodunit pretenses here. H.H. Holmes done it. And really, H.H. Holmes is among the most prolific criminals I've ever researched. So with that in mind, let's begin. The guy who went by the name H.H. Holmes was born in a small New Hampshire town called Gilmanton. But that wasn't the first name he went by, or even the last. He eventually had more than 20 aliases, but the name his mother intended him to have was Herman Webster Mudgett. He was born May 6, 1861, to parents, Levi and Theodate, both of whom were pretty prominent as they had descended from the town's first English immigrants. The Mudgets were a strict religious family, devout Methodists of the spare the rod, spoil the child variety, 
though it doesn't seem as though Herman gave them much use for the rod. He was an excellent student, incredibly bright and hungry to learn, so much so that other kids would pick on him. At least, that's what he would later write from his prison cell. As you will see, you should approach anything, this man says with skepticism, as he just might be the world's most unreliable narrator. If the childhood story is true, and when something like this, Herman was afraid of the local doctor's office, mostly because there was this creepy skeleton mounted there. This was a real human skeleton. Plastic versions wouldn't be around for quite some time. And doctors had only recently started using dissection as a way to understand the human body. Herman said this stack of bones was unnerving, and he made the mistake of somehow letting two of his classmates know of his discomfort. They supposedly rounded up a group of children and forced him into the doctor's office, where they shoved him toward the skeleton, its arms outstretched as though reaching for him, as the poor kid shrieked. Instead of further traumatizing him, though, Herman would later write that it actually cured him of his heebie-jeebies. He had faced down his fear and would, from then on, be fascinated by human anatomy rather than scared of it. He continued to excel in school and, in fact, graduated high school at age 16 and almost immediately landed a teaching job in a nearby New Hampshire town. While this isn't mentioned in the books I read or documentaries I've seen, the truth seems to have been elastic with this guy even from an early age. Comparing his marriage records with census info, it seemed he lied about his age, even to his wife, pretending to be 20 when he got married instead of 18. That marriage came July 4th, 1878, when he was wed to a beautiful young woman named Clara Lovering, whose father, like Herman's, had fought for the Union in the Civil War. By all accounts, Clara adored her husband. It seems he, too, had been completely smitten with her, at least at first. She gave birth to their son, Robert, who's listed as four months old on the 1880 census. Not long after, Herman decided he wanted to go to medical school, which back then didn't require a pesky undergraduate degree first. He enrolled for a year at the University of Vermont, but supposedly didn't like the program, so he instead entered the cutting-edge University of Michigan. Incidentally, this is the second killer we featured who graduated UM. The other was Richard Loeb. This is criminal profiler Tom Cronin, interviewed in a documentary called H.H. Holmes, America's First Serial Killer. Most serial killers don't finish college. They're smart enough to. Oh, yeah, they could. They don't finish because they usually don't have the self-discipline. At that point of their life that they've conned enough people, they go to grammar school and high school because they're learning their trade, which their trade is an ultimate con man. Holmes uh, is really someone unique because he finishes. Not only finishes, he finishes medical school. Still going by his birth name, Herman Mudgett, he was a good student and especially excelled at anatomy. His wife stayed behind in New Hampshire, working as a dressmaker and sending money to her husband to help him through his studies. At UM, medical students were routinely given cadavers to dissect, a rarity at the time, for which Herman had a stronger stomach than most. Well, in medical school back then in Michigan, probably some of his fantasy was working on the cadavers. And wow, the University of Michigan gave him cadavers to work on. Well, that helps his fantasy. Holmes also had a con man's mind, and working with these dead bodies gave him some get-rich-quick ideas. By his own account, while a med student, he several times pulled out life insurance policies under fictitious names, then disfigured one of the school's cadavers and passed it off successfully as the insured. He pocketed thousands of dollars doing this. Those weren't his only cons. This is author Harold Schechter, who wrote a book about Holmes called Depraved and was interviewed in the aforementioned documentary. He was a kind of prodigy of crime. And, you know, he was really sort of an evil genius who, if it hadn't been for the fact that he was so clearly sociopathic, probably really could have been a great man. He tallied other crimes during college, too, according to another documentary, this one from A&E. 
During the summer of his junior year, he becomes a traveling book salesman. But instead of turning the money in, he just keeps it. He keeps buying things on credit and pocketing the proceeds instead of paying for the goods. And he keeps getting away with it. This man was as slippery as they come, passing off bad checks or skipping town before a bill was due. Like many socio-slash-psychopaths, he could be incredibly charming, allowing him to get away with a lot of it for a long, long time. It helped that he relocated more often than a military brat, and the aliases helped too. Among his many names, Henry Gordon, Alexander Bond, H.S. Campbell, Henry M. Howard, and finally, the name he's known by best, Henry Howard Holmes. That was the name he adopted in 1886 when he chose Chicago, Illinois as his new home. Herman Mudgett lived briefly with his wife and son in Pennsylvania after he graduated medical school, but Herman said he wanted to go to Chicago, the city that had just become the nation's second most populous after New York. He was sure he'd find success there, and as soon as he found his footing, he said he'd send for Clara and little Robert to join him. He promised. But when he left behind Clara and Robert, he also said goodbye to Herman Mudgett. H.H. Holmes had all the accomplishments that Mudgett had, but none of the baggage. He was still a charming and intelligent doctor, but there were no debt collectors chasing him or legal entanglements he had to avoid. In the days before ubiquitous photography and social media, he was able to start anew simply by changing his name. A community within Chicago caught his eye. It was called Englewood, and it was a bustling but relatively new part of town situated about seven miles south of the Loop. Up until about 1850, Englewood was basically forest and swampland, but by the time Holmes moved to town, there were plenty of businesses, and one of the biggest employers was the Union Stockyard. That was a meatpacking district covering nearly 500 acres that earned Chicago the label Hog Butcher for the World. Englewood had its own little downtown-type area, but it was also connected to Chicago's proper downtown by horse car lines in the late 1880s, which would later morph into electric trolleys, followed by the elevated line. A pharmacy at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street caught Holmes's attention. It's owned and operated by a Mrs. Holton, whose husband is dying of cancer in the apartment upstairs. On April 25, 1886, Dr. and Elizabeth Holton ran an ad in the Chicago Tribune that read, Wanted. Registered pharmacist. Must have good recommendation. Holmes answered the ad. He was handsome, with cool blue eyes. But more than that, he was warm and charming. He learned that Elizabeth was running the pharmacy herself because her husband was sick with cancer. And he seemed genuinely worried about her. Like, geez, I sure would like to help you out. So Elizabeth hired him, and he seemed like a godsend. He worked long, hard hours and not only kept the pharmacy afloat, but actually made it more prosperous. In Larson's book, he writes that Dr. Holton died of cancer not long after the hire, though I couldn't find any obituary notices for the man who presumably had been well-liked in Englewood. The fate of Elizabeth Holton is muddy, too, but what's known is that Holmes bought the Holton Pharmacy from her and then quickly set his sights on buying an empty block across the street. He designed what would become known around town as the castle. You might be wondering how he had money to buy an entire block. Well, con men are gonna con. Holmes had a seemingly never-ending supply of schemes, and they were by no means restricted to Chicago. In a world where horses and trains were the dominant modes of transport, this guy managed to dart around the country as though he had a private jet. Under various aliases, he swindled thousands of dollars out of people nationwide most notably in California and Texas. Holmes also had an interesting way of squirming out of paying his bills, which you can see in newspapers from the time and listings of area lawsuits. It seems he routinely sued people to get out of paying his bills, or they sued him because they'd been stiffed. Either way, he held on to far more money than he would have otherwise, 
and that is how he could afford to buy a block across the street from his pharmacy and build a home to his precise specifications. And this was more than just a house. It is sort of a physical representation of Holmes himself, a very complicated uh, being that isn't at all uh, inside what it appears to be on the outside. The entire first floor of the so-called castle would be dedicated to business space that Holmes would rent out, and then the second floor was a maze of some three dozen rooms. The third floor would be Holmes's home. He would advertise in newspapers for carpenters and other workers, and the turnover at the site was relentless. Turns out that was by design. He designs it himself. He's his own uh, general contractor. And what he does is he brings in different teams of craftsmen to work on the building. He fires them, brings in another team, fires them. So there really isn't anyone who really understands everything that's in this building. There was this constant turnover of workers on the building. Author Harold Schechter again. He would hire a mason to put in a wall and then fire the guy or hire somebody to put in part of a staircase and then fire him. And uh, there, there seemed to be several, several very sinister reasons behind that. One was he managed not to pay a lot of these people because he was always claiming that they were doing incompetent work. But the other much more insidious reason was that no one except him really had a clear idea of what the structure of the interior of the house was. The people of Inglewood swooned over the doctor and his mysterious building, which took years to erect. It earned the nickname The Castle because it was so massive. While it was being built, Holmes lived above the pharmacy that now bore his assumed name. He was the kind of guy men respected because he was still in his 20s and yet owned his own business and literally his own block. And women thought he was downright dreamy. He knew what women needed. He knew how to appeal to them and how to make them feel at ease. Whatever that skill is, he had it in spades and used it every opportunity he could. He hired a string of typewriters, not the machine, but that's what they called the women who typed back in the day, and wooed many of them into affairs. The turnover there was pretty drastic, too. Sometimes the women would just disappear one day and never be heard from again. Anyone asking after them would be met with a shrug from Holmes. Women, am I right? Disappearances were exceedingly, disturbingly common in this era, especially in Chicago. There are a few reasons for this. First, women were gaining more independence. Yes, voting was still a ways off and marriage-slash-motherhood generally the expectation, but things were inching toward the direction of more autonomy. That meant that women answered ads for jobs and made their own money. Some lived in boarding houses, even mixed-gender ones, while others could afford to live alone. If one of those single women happened to disappear, it was easy to say, well, she must have hopped a train for someplace new. And if something horrible had befallen her, well, what was she expecting, thinking she could make it without a man? Serial killers like to identify women who are kind of needy, uh, women who uh, uh, will be convinced to do just about anything. They actually con women into getting into a very vulnerable position. The humans are funny. We're the only animal that never listens to the inside. The inside telling you, don't do this. This is wrong. So people disappeared. Missing people were such a problem, in fact, that the Chicago police were considering creating a division just to tackle all of the cases. No doubt other big cities dealt with similar issues, but Chicago's location, a midpoint for the country in which thousands of trains came and went, bringing God knows who to God knows where. So the truth is, we don't know what happened to a number of women whose paths cross with Dr. H.H. Holmes. Maybe nothing, but there are suspicions. What is known is that once the building Holmes was erecting in Chicago was finished, he sold the old Holton Pharmacy to a worker he had hired at what seemed like a fantastic price. Though he failed to mention the many debts he had allowed to accrue that the buyer was inheriting. He also failed to mention that he planned to open a competing pharmacy right across the street in his newly finished building. After settling into this new location, 
Holmes needed help running a jewelry counter inside his drugstore because that was a thing in the 1890s. You'd buy your mineral water and bandages in the same spot you'd pick out a necklace for your wife. His posting caught the attention of a man named Asilius Connor, though that name's a nightmare, so he went by Ned. In early 1891, Holmes hired Connor, who was excited not just by the new job, but also by its location. It was near Jackson Park, which had been barely more than a barren wasteland until recently. But it was now famous worldwide because that's the spot that Congress had chosen to host a huge world fair in 1893. Connor moved his wife, Julia, and their eight-year-old daughter, Pearl, into the same building where he now worked, the so-called castle. Soon, Holmes offered Julia a job, too, which she accepted. Ned found his new employer smooth and dapper. He was exceptionally warm and seemed incredibly concerned about Ned's daughter, Pearl. Holmes suggested that Connor get his life insured and make Pearl the beneficiary. But Ned later said he repeatedly refused. He was in good health, after all. And though Holmes paid him some $12 a week, he wasn't so flush that he could afford something as fancy as life insurance. But he understood why someone like Holmes would think about such things. And this guy was in a class all his own. Ned would marvel at the intricate machinery Holmes had built in the massive building. An enormous tank, for example, that Holmes said was a furnace for glass bending. Ned thought the guy was a straight-up genius. But something did bug him about him. Holmes was awfully attentive to Ned's wife, Julia, a tall, beautiful, blonde woman. And as the months went by... Julia became less and less interested in her husband. Friends who stopped by the store told Ned, Man, I think your wife's cheating on you with this Holmes guy. Pretty soon, Ned believed that too, and he bailed. He couldn't compete with a man like Holmes. He got a new job and tried to talk Julia into giving him custody of Pearl, but she refused. Neither parent had any idea that the little girl's life was on the line. All of this went down from 1889 to 1891. What happened next wouldn't be known for several years, but one day, Julia and Pearl disappeared. The killing for him is about power. He would seduce a woman, and once she was his, he would kill her. While their bodies were never 100% identified, most historians believe this is what happened. Julia had pestered her lover Holmes to marry her, and he promised her he would. Then she realized she was pregnant, so her demands became more urgent. Holmes agreed, yes, let's do this. Let's start our life together properly. But here's the thing. Let me give you an abortion first so that there's no scandal at the start. I've done this procedure before. I am a doctor after all, and then we'll be married. So on Christmas Eve, 1891, Julia said goodnight to Pearl, who was antsy to open presents the next morning, and went into a room Holmes had prepared for the operation. She lay down on a table and allowed him to administer chloroform as an anesthesia. And he did so until she died. Then he walked down the hall to Pearl's bedroom and did the same to her. What he did with Pearl's remains is a mystery. But soon after this, A man who worked as what's called an articulator, someone who strips cadavers and cleans and reassembles the bones, received an adult woman's body from Holmes. The skin had been removed, but there was still a lot of messy work to do. After he was done... Just a week later, Holmes sold a clean, articulated skeleton to the Hahnemann Medical College for nearly $200. You might wonder... How is this possible? How can you hand over a dead body to someone and not be questioned as to where it came from? Well, in the late 19th century, medical schools like UM were desperate for cadavers. So desperate that students and doctors routinely robbed fresh graves. When a medical school received either a skeleton or a cadaver, it accepted it, no questions asked. Holmes knew this and realized he could turn murder into a profit-making business. And Julia and Pearl 
were just the beginning. While employees came and went, sometimes under mysterious circumstances, H.H. Holmes didn't have many friends, but he did occasionally have an accomplice or two. One such accomplice was Benjamin Peitzel, the father of five described in the opening. Peitzel had applied for a job at Holmes's drugstore, and he was a hard, if imperfect, worker. One of Peitzel's big problems was that he was an alcoholic, but he was a big strapping guy. And anyway, he became Holmes's right-hand man. They became very, very close. He and Holmes became very much partners in crime. And Peitzel served a number of important purposes for Holmes. That Peitzel was a big guy mattered because Holmes was not. He stood about five foot eight and weighed 140 pounds. Holmes himself though obviously a very, very dangerous person, didn't look particularly dangerous. Uh, He was a rather slight, um, elegant man, one of the reasons he was so attractive to women. It sounds as though their alliance built slowly, but it did build. And it seems that Peitzel shielded his wife Carrie from any nefarious goings-on. Peitzel and another trusted worker, Patrick Quinlan, would help with odd jobs in the middle of the night, say, disposing of a suspiciously heavy trunk, for example. Whether they were fully aware of what they were aiding remains a mystery. It's like going to the amusement park. The first time you get on a roller coaster, it's scary. Uh, you're close to falling out. And that that people like that thrill, get to that line. Well, association with a guy like Holmes would be the same thing. People get close. They don't think they're ever going to be the victim. But they had to have had questions. For starters, there was the stream of people who visited Holmes's castle, never to be seen again. And there was the fact that Holmes told one woman after another that she was the only girl for him. Holmes even married some of these women, never mind that he was still legally married to Clara, the woman he had abandoned in New Hampshire. Holmes's second wife was a young, blue-eyed beauty named Murder Belknap. The two married in 1887, and at first, Murda helped mine the pharmacy. But eventually she got annoyed by the endless parade of women who came in to flirt with her equally flirtatious husband. Holmes always managed to put her at ease, but once Murda got pregnant, she found herself less patient with him. Holmes, in turn, got impatient with her and shifted her to bookkeeping work, which kept her in their apartment and out of the pharmacy. Murda had a baby girl named Lucy and basically disappeared, not in the same way as the other women, though. Strangely, all of the women Holmes legally married survived this tale. Maybe I shouldn't say legally. I mean, he was a polygamist, so his subsequent marriages weren't legal, but we'll define it as a marriage with a paper trail. Those women survived. Because there were also women he quote-unquote married with no paper trail. He fake married a woman named Minnie Williams, whom he'd met tooling around Boston sometime in the early 1890s. Minnie wasn't Holmes's usual type, in that she was a bit frumpy and less of a looker, but she had something important going for her. She had inherited some $40,000 from a rich uncle. Most of that money was tied up in a hunk of Texas land. Holmes, under the alias Harry Gordon, wooed Minnie, who had tried to resist him. But his charms proved to be too much. Eventually, she accepted a job in Chicago and moved there in the summer of 1892. Minnie's sister Anna, nicknamed Nanny, wanted to vet this suitor, so she packed a trunk and came to Chicago in 1893. She wrote once to friends the next month, gushing about Brother Harry, and she asked them to send more of her stuff to Chicago. She was going to stay there, she said, with her sister and her sister's new husband. Her friends obliged and sent along some items, but that trunk of belongings was never claimed, and neither Nanny nor Minnie was ever seen again. It was around this time that Holmes and Peitzel traveled to Texas to stake claim to his supposed wife Minnie's inherited land. They hired workers to build on it and managed to use a forged deed to secure a $10,000 mortgage from a bank. And then they skipped town without ever paying for the construction. 
Holmes used that money to run a scheme in Denver that apparently netted him $27,000. There he married a woman called Georgiana Yoke, paperwork and all, on January 17, 1894. She was the last of Holmes's wives, though if you'd asked her, she would have told you she didn't marry anyone named Holmes. She married a guy named Henry Mansfield Howard. Yoke lived with him in Chicago, completely unaware that he already had a wife and daughter living in a house he'd bought nearby, not to mention the wife and son in New Hampshire. I mean, how this man kept his identity straight is beyond me. But he had kept this nonsense up for years, bouncing around the country, always returning to his home base, the castle in Chicago, a castle that, thanks to this Chicago World Fair, was about to become an infamous hotel as millions were drawn to the city from all over the globe. People took excursion trains out there on Sundays and they wanted to see it. The fair was officially called the World's Columbian Exposition. Columbian as in Christopher Columbus. Get it? World fairs were all the rage at the time, the most recent having been Paris's Universal Exposition, which ran from May through October 1889. That had been a huge success, drawing millions of visitors worldwide. So Congress got the idea to tie one in America to the 300th anniversary of Christopher Columbus supposedly finding the country and eventually chose Chicago as the site for it. The fair was a huge success, not only attracting 27 million visitors, but also cementing Chicago as an international hub. Of the 200 buildings erected at the time for the fair, just two still stand, but much of the landscape design remains. Now, when Congress chose Chicago as the fair site, it wasn't without controversy. And violent crime was rampant there. Larson, in his book, reported that in the first six months of 1892, the city tallied nearly 800 violent deaths. Just as is the case with today's murders, most were over sex or money, but some were less explicable. Many went unsolved. And suddenly, millions of people were pouring into the city, even before the fair gates had opened, because of the jobs created by even just the construction phase. They're not calling their relatives, telling them where they're at. They just know that they're going to Chicago to see the Columbian Exposition. Perfect victims, because they're unknown in the city. Their relatives, wherever they came from, know that they were coming to Chicago, and they never came back. How do you start to find them? They don't even know where they stayed. Perfect, easy victims. I'm sure some of them got in and out of his place with no problem. And others, they walked in and they never checked out. At the time, the overall economy in America was taking some hits. But jobs were plentiful in Chicago. Many of them hit up hotels for living quarters, including simple, affordable rooms inside of Holmes's castle. Men are in large part turned away from the hotel, so it becomes filled with women for Holmes to prey on. He's a forgiving proprietor, often forgiving young women of their debts when they suddenly leave town without their belongings. Now, you'll remember that the first floor of the castle was occupied by various businesses. Holmes and a few regular tenants lived on the third floor. But it was the second floor that made the place a macabre legend. No one knew it from looking at the building's facade. In fact, the place looked big, but kind of boring, like it needed a real architect behind its design and not just a doctor with a dream. But anyone given access to that second floor learned that it was straight from a nightmare. This hotel was designed by Holmes himself with the intent of murder built into its walls. Secret rooms and pathways hidden throughout the hotel masked hotel visitors to the horrors happening right below their feet. Holmes intentionally designed false doors and stairs that led to nowhere. Some rooms were lined with asbestos to ensure sound couldn't escape. One room was actually a giant vault that, when closed, became airtight. Homes in some rooms had discreetly installed pipes that funneled the gas, the valves to which he could control from his personal apartment. Stairs led to strange labyrinthian passageways, as though designed to, say, trap a person attempting to flee. 
A bathroom on the second floor had a trapdoor with stairs leading straight to the basement. There also was a hallway that featured a greased chute big enough to slide a body. That chute also led to the basement. As you can probably guess, the basement played an important role in this house of horrors. And there was something akin to an autopsy table, crusty with dried blood. That glass-bending furnace mentioned earlier was down there too. Though when police eventually inspected it, they realized it was better suited for cremating a human alive than it was for glasswork. Holmes had also built a medieval torture device called a rack, which could be used to rip limbs from a human body. Of course, when it was discovered, Holmes had a different explanation for this device. It was something that Holmes claimed was an what he called an elasticity determinator, which was supposedly a device to create, as he put it, a, a race of giants by strapping people onto this thing and then stretching them out. But it was clearly some kind of torture device. Because Holmes had such enormous turnover among workers when constructing the building, and because building permits were still a new concept, one that wasn't required yet in Chicago, no one had any clue that the second floor had been designed specifically with murder in mind. We simply don't know how many people died there. Usually when I read open-ended estimates, I dismiss them as sensationalized. But in this case, we only know nine of Holmes' confirmed victims, and four of those nine were killed outside of the house in the months leading up to his capture. I can't imagine that he built a home with a greased body chute, lived in it for at least five years, had countless guests and employees cycle in and out, and yet only killed five people. He could have killed dozens, maybe more. And no one killed inside that house triggered a police investigation. Instead, H.H. Holmes was finally exposed by killing a man he worried was about to expose him. Benjamin Peitzel knew too much. We're not sure how much, but we know it was too much. That knowledge, combined with Peitzel's affinity for drink, made him dangerous in the mind of H.H. Holmes. So Holmes devised a plan. He persuaded Peitzel to take out a very large insurance policy on his life. Peitzel's wife, Carrie, was the beneficiary of this policy. And the plan was that they were going to stage Peitzel's death in Philadelphia, which was where the insurance company was located. And Holmes was going to substitute a cadaver that he assured Peitzel he would have no trouble getting hold of. Peitzel was going to go underground for a while, and they would collect this money and then split the proceeds. They got Peitzel insured for $10,000, and then the two of them moved to Philadelphia for a few months to establish a life there under pseudonyms. They hit some other cities, too, conducting smaller scams, one of which actually got Holmes arrested for the first time. That was in Missouri, and it just so happened that he had a cell adjoining one occupied by an infamous Wild West outlaw dubbed the Handsome Bandit. Marion Hedgepeth who was a very notorious outlaw at the time, shared a jail cell with Holmes. And while Holmes was in jail with Hedgepeth, Holmes told him of this plan, this insurance plan that he had cooked up. Why Holmes revealed this to Hedgepeth is a little bit of a mystery. Hedgepeth was quick to offer a hand and told Holmes about a dirty lawyer who could help facilitate the whole thing. Hedgepeth simply asked for $500 in return. Holmes agreed, and then was bailed out by Peitzel. This sounds like a footnote, but it comes back later. Back in Philadelphia, Holmes and Peitzel put the final steps of their scheme into action. One day, a client came in to talk with B.F. Perry, who was really Benjamin Peitzel, and found him dead, his face destroyed in an explosion. Now, Carrie Peitzel had not wanted to go through with this scheme to defraud a life insurance company, 
But her husband was adamant it would be the answer to their prayers, and he said Holmes had gotten away with it before, so Carrie agreed. Once this dead body was discovered, Carrie Peitzel alerted authorities that her husband had been in Philadelphia under an assumed name in hopes of sorting out some financial woes. Holmes was alerted as well, and he volunteered to identify the body, which at the time was the only way people could know for sure that someone was indeed dead. Fingerprint technology wasn't the identification method of choice until around 1903 and after. Trouble was, the authorities in this case wanted a direct relative to confirm the identity, and Carrie and several of her five kids happened to be sick, so she sent her 14-year-old daughter Alice. Alice traveled to Philadelphia with Holmes, identified the dead body as her father, but believed Holmes when he assured her it wasn't really her father. Then, Holmes, in a convoluted plot, moved her from one place to another while he claimed he was trying to safely reunite her with her family. Carrie Peitzel collected the insurance money. When Holmes came back without her husband or her daughter, Alice, she was confused, but Holmes said that father and daughter were in hiding together and the whole family would reunite soon enough. In fact, he added, I'll take two of your other kids, 10-year-old Nellie and 8-year-old Howard, and bring them to Benjamin too, so it'll be easier for you to travel with the other two kids. It's almost pure luck that authorities pieced together that Peitzel hadn't died by accident after all. Forensics was in a very rudimentary stage. The most that you could do with a blood stain was go and identify that, in fact, it was blood. This is Marion Caparuso, an Illinois State Police forensics expert, interviewed in that H.H. Holmes documentary. When Benjamin Peitzel's body was found and they identified chloroform in the stomach contents, they were just very lucky that they had a large quantity so that they could go with the physical characteristics, the color and the odor of chloroform. Because if there had only been trace amounts, there wasn't a test that could have been done to positively identify minute amounts of chloroform until well into the 1940s when there were instrumental techniques available to identify various organic compounds. Though the death had at first looked like an accident, this chloroform discovery meant that it had been staged because the amount needed to leave such a smell was surely debilitating, if not fatal on its own, meaning that Peitzel couldn't have been conducting some chemical experiment that exploded and killed him. Nope, this was clearly murder. Once investigators caught on, they quickly tied Peitzel to Holmes, who denied knowing anything about anything. Despite his denials, this story of suspected insurance fraud made huge headlines. And that caught the attention of Marion Hedgepeth, a.k.a. the Handsome Bandit, who saw the story in the news and got pissed off that he'd never been paid the $500 Holmes had promised him. So he alerted authorities and told them everything he knew about the scheme. Holmes was arrested. His home was searched. Authorities weren't there looking for bodies, but the sinister layout and the bits of bone that they found sounded alarm bells. In 1895, Holmes was charged with murder. The Holmes case generated this incredible amount of na national attention and really international attention. Really in his own time and in America, Holmes was much more notorious and more widely known than Jack the Ripper, who was a contemporary of his. The trial was not just a media sensation. It was an absolute circus. Holmes's trial was kind of the O.J. Simpson trial of the day. It just generated this huge amount of publicity. The case had become a kind of national obsession. Of course, there wasn't CNN or Court TV back then, so it couldn't be covered quite as relentlessly. But it was covered very, very extensively. There were true crime books and pamphlets and all kinds of stuff. And Holmes himself had become a sort of folk figure almost, you know, the sort of national boogeyman. Holmes was only convicted of Peitzel's murder, Though there's no question he also killed three of the man's children. We know this thanks to a private investigator named Frank Geyer. 
After several months of traveling all over, following in Holmes's footsteps, Frank Geyer did in fact manage, uh, by dint of incredibly hard and heroic kind of detective work, to locate the bodies of all three children. A uh, little boy he found, well, he found charred remains of the little boy in a stove in a little house in Indianapolis. And they dug up the remains of the two little girls up in Toronto. Once that was discovered, the extent of Holmes's fiendishness, his monstrosity, became evident to the public. Investigators also accused Holmes in the deaths of Julia Connor, Pearl Connor, Minnie Williams, and her sister Nanny. Newspaper reporters tracked down Ned, and he said he had no doubt that Julia and Pearl had been among Holmes's victims. Now, I mentioned that there were nine known victims. If you do the math, you realize there's one known victim left. Her name was Emmeline Sigrand. She'd come to work at the pharmacy in early 1892 and fallen in love with her boss. She also made friends with some of the building's full-time tenants. One of those tenants, a woman named Mrs. Lawrence, later told police that Emmeline had excitedly told her that she planned to go back home to Indiana to visit her family at Christmas time. And then she just disappeared. Mrs. Lawrence was confused as to why she hadn't said goodbye before leaving, but figured Emmeline would be back soon enough. Days passed, however, and Mrs. Lawrence finally asked Holmes if he knew where she had gone. Why, she left and got married, he replied. He even fakes wedding announcements from Emmeline and a fictional man and sends them to her family. Never mind that she never mentioned this dude to anyone. Mrs. Lawrence was suspicious, but what she was imagining was just so evil. She couldn't fathom that Holmes could have done anything like it. So she never reported it to police. Emmeline's parents turned to Holmes and was moved by how concerned he seemed to be when they said she hadn't contacted them in a while. Later, after police began making sense of the horrible house, an officer noticed a strange marring of the door to that big, airtight vault I'd described earlier. Etched into the door's enamel, about two feet above the floor, was the distinct impression of a bare foot. They could see the toes, the ball, the heel of the foot, which clearly belonged to a woman. It shouldn't have been there. Touching the enamel usually left no permanent mark. But this one just wouldn't wipe off. Investigators pieced together what had happened. Holmes had lured Emmeline into the vault, which was airtight. When he closed the door, he ensured she would suffocate. But he did something else, too. He first doused the room in acid to trigger a chemical reaction that would deplete the oxygen in the room even faster. The acid got on Emmeline's foot. When she desperately kicked at the door to free herself, she forever left her mark. Most victims left far less. In the basement, police found a vat of acid with eight ribs and part of a skull. Elsewhere, they found 18 ribs from a child, several vertebrae, a bone from a foot, a shoulder blade, a hip socket. They might have found more, but as Caparuso, the forensics expert, said, It was very difficult to go and identify even the bones as being human in origin because with the very small fragments, you didn't have enough of the identifying characteristics to be able to make that ID. Investigators also found bloodstained clothing, vaults full of quicklime, charred high-heeled shoes. They found bank documents from someone called Lucy Burbank, yet they never found Lucy. While in jail awaiting trial, Holmes solidified his unreliable narrator role. He at first denied the murders and then confessed to them in writing to a newspaper for which he was paid. Holmes, who had already issued at a half a dozen completely self-contradictory versions of, of his crimes, clearly at this point felt he had nothing to lose. He was going to die anyway. In this confession, he did a complete about-face and portrayed himself as the worst monster who ever lived. He just basically confessed to every crime anybody had ever suspected him of and threw in a few more for good measure. In his newspaper confession, he claimed to have killed 27 people, and he even provided their names. But some of those people were located, alive and well, afterward. Holmes then recanted his confession just before the gallows, 
claiming that the only two lives he ever ended belonged to two women, they having died at my hands as a result of a criminal operation. In other words, they died as he was performing an abortion on them. On May 7, 1896, Herman W. Mudgett, alias H.H. Holmes, was hanged at 10.12 a.m. just days before his 35th birthday. When the body was examined, doctors found that he likely died fairly quickly as his neck was broken. It seemed he didn't suffer nearly as long as his victims. And he also didn't want his corpse violated the way he had violated so many others. He asked to be buried encased in a slab of concrete, a wish his third wife, who still loved the guy, made sure was granted. Nothing is left of his morbidly world-famous murder castle, as it came to be known. It had been sold after Holmes's death to someone who planned to open it to the public, but the people of Englewood weren't pleased with that plan. Just as its new owner began readying it to become a tourist attraction, someone set fire to the building, ensuring that the castle and all of its horrible secrets went up in smoke. To research this episode, I read The Devil in the White City, which had been on my to-read list for years. It's a really interesting story. I also read an hourly history book, which was a fine primer, and watched several documentaries. Lastly, this case briefly made me paranoid that flat-out anybody could be leading a double life, but my husband assures me he doesn't have the energy to be a serial killer on the down low. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 